Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by two CSIS colleagues from the Southeast Asia program, Murray Hebert and Greg Poling, to discuss Murray's new book, Under Beijing's Shadow, Southeast Asia's China Challenge. In his book, Murray details the response of different Southeast Asian countries to China's rise and argues that countries view China both as an opportunity and a challenge. In formulating U.S. policy towards Southeast Asia, how do we deal with these countries' competing economic and security interests? Welcome to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, and I'm joined by two of the leading thinkers on Southeast Asia in Washington and indeed uh, anywhere, Murray Hebert, who is our principal guest because Murray has written a fascinating book called Under Asia's Shadow, Southeast Asia's China Challenge, which we'll get into in detail on this podcast. And then I'm joined by my colleague at CSIS, Greg Poling, who runs the Southeast Asia program and is a solid Southeast Asia hand himself. And we'll have a discussion about Murray's book, about dynamics within Southeast Asia and the larger strategic uh, game that's being played out between the U.S. and China a game that almost no one in Southeast Asia wants, but it is their reality and in many ways the subject of Marie's terrific book. The book is getting early praise from some very senior scholars and uh, political figures in the U.S. and in the region, Marie. Congratulations. And we'll get into it. But um, first, on this podcast, people are always interested to find out how you got into this subject. You've had an amazingly interesting career starting work in Vietnam after the Vietnam War, basically, and then Far Eastern Economic Review, the Wall Street Journal, across the region. I like to introduce you and embarrass you by saying he's a true Southeast Asia Wally. He's been attacked by cobras and imprisoned by Mahatir. Uh, I don't know if the first <laughs> one's true. I know the second one is. So tell us a bit how you got into the region and why you stuck with it. What attracted you? Yeah. Well, I'm really a very much an accidental uh, Southeast Asia watcher. I grew up in... Um, landlocked, ice-bound Manitoba, Canada. And, uh, you know, I was blissfully going along. And uh, as a college student, I ended up in Guadeloupe and uh, French West Indies. And I discovered you could be warm in July, which I thought was a novel idea. (laughs) And so I grew up also as a Mennonite. Fortunately, I didn't grow up in a buggy. We could use cars, but the Mennonites have this aid grouping called the Mennonite Central Committee, which gives communist fits, if you say that. But I wanted to go overseas. And so I applied for a job either in Central or or South America. And they said, well, we don't have any jobs, but we got a job in Vietnam. And I said, well, that's not my thing. And they said, well, that's where we got a job. So I got a job there and also spent time in Laos. And I fell wildly in love. I don't quite know why. Maybe it's the food. Maybe it's the people, they really get to you. Uh, They're very dynamic and uh, energized and very open. The Vietnamese in particular are very open. I think it's because they're a long sea and they've been invaded so often they they think it's better to co-op foreigners maybe. But, and then, yeah, I eventually segued into journalism and was in Thailand, back in Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, and did a short stint in China. So, yeah, for over 20 years, I lived in Southeast Asia. And you wrote for the Wall Street Journal and for the Far Eastern Economic Review, which went out of print about 20 years ago. 
which for 2004. To, yeah, not quite 20 years ago. And for people in, in my generation, it was like a, a life raft getting that and understanding what was happening in the region. But you were, you, you, we just got to divert for a second. You were jailed by Mahathir for your journalism. <laughs> so you got to tell us about that and the hunger strike. <laughs> well, so I was a journalist in Malaysia. After Vietnam, I went to Malaysia. And um, I was getting all kinds of stories about sort of the rent-a-judge problem, that you, situation where really uh, elites could get a judge that would be very favorable to them, and then they'd give a ruling that would be in their favor. Well, I there was this kid that was a, a student at the International School of Kuala Lumpur, and he sued. The father was an appeal court judge. His mother sued the, um, the school uh, for... $2.4 million US, no small change, for the fellow students kicking him off a debating team because they felt he was fabricating evidence constantly. And I went to the trial. And so after I'd gone to the trial for about a week, I uh, decided to write a story about it. Actually, I be began by talking about how Malaysia was trying to woo foreign schools to set up in Malaysia. Anyway, that piece in the end was called See You in Court. And, was, was that uh, for the Far Eastern Economic Review or the Wall yeah, Street Journal? Right. For the yeah, yeah. Far Eastern Economic Review. And the piece was called See You in Court. And the judge was outraged and nailed me with contempt of court. Now, having grown up in Canada, I'm familiar with Commonwealth law that you cannot write about court proceedings like you can in the U.S. But you have a escape hatch if you have a story lawyered, which a lawyer reads it and decides you don't have malicious intent. So we had it lawyered twice, but the judge never let us use that for evidence. So the family dropped the case against the International School of Kuala Lumpur and everybody just went after me. So I was found guilty in a trial where we could have no defense. Their lawyer, the uh, prosecuting lawyer, he would say things and then he'd answer his own questions. My lawyer was good, but he just really couldn't say anything. We asked to bring in the, the lawyers. They wouldn't allow that. We asked if I could testify. And it was very interesting because they went through the article like it was a theological book and they would decide what certain words mean and they would exegete it. What does see you mean and see you in court? And you just want to say, oh, no, because, you know, Mike, you've written for as journalists. You don't think about every word for half an hour when you. So Mahathir was in charge. He was the prime minister. And, th and this was, and you were working for a pretty high profile international magazine. Do you think this was coming from the top? It was certainly got a, a yellow light, green light from the top. The lawyer that was going after me, Gopal Sriram, had been the lawyer that helped Mahathir in 1988 to reconstitute Amno, because his, his party, because it had been uh, ruled in unconstitutional, had done something illegal, it had done something wrong. So he helped Mahathir get out of that. And so Mahathir may have just given him this. So I was found guilty and uh, I appealed. They took away my passport for two and a half years and eventually uh, my appeal was heard and my the verdict was upheld. And I was sentenced to, instead of three months initially, I was sentenced to six weeks and I got out after 30 days for good behavior. So the book, which I really recommend people read, if you know Southeast Asia well already, you'll learn something new. If you're following Asia, this book will tell you about the center of gravity for, in my view, the center of gravity for U.S.-China strategic competition, which is Southeast Asia. 
but it reads like it was written by somebody who was imprisoned by Mahathir and went on a hunger strike. <laughs> you, you you get out there. You really get out there, and you and you dig deep and find things out. Why don't you tell us? And I'll turn to Greg in a moment because we're joined by Greg Poling as well. Um, but tell us quickly. You know the the bottom line takeaway uh, or argument in the book. I guess the the uh, bottom line is that uh, countries are a uh, little bit schizophrenic about China. On the one hand, they want to take. A, advantage of the opportunities. China's economic opening in the late 70s was a huge boom for for Southeast Asia. The middle income economies suddenly started taking off. So they love the trade stuff. They're a little ambivalent on the infrastructure projects. They're very nervous about what's happening in the South China Sea and, and what's happening now in the Mekong. They really view, though, China as both a challenge and an opportunity. They see it much closer than the U.S., and they really don't feel that China is this big threat. It's a threat, but not so big. When you ask a lot of policymakers in Washington about Southeast Asia and strategy, the first thing many will go to is infrastructure, is countering BRI, using the free and open Indo-Pacific. But one of your findings is actually infrastructure is not that attractive. Can you say a bit more about that? And then I'll, I'll, I'd like to get Greg's view. Like, like Laos is enormously indebted, more than its GDP in debt to China because of BRI. So, so there are some countries that are already very, very dependent. But how broad did that finding go about infrastructure? Because we're spending a lot of time with the Australians and the Japanese trying to counter BRI. Yeah. But maybe, we sh- should we not be worried about it? No, I think people should be worried. Countries want infrastructure. And so I think for, I'll answer your second question first. So for the U.S. to work with Japan and Australia to help provide an alternative to the BRI is really useful because they need so much infrastructure and they don't want China building all of it. All all of theirs is north-south, which all roads lead to Beijing, right? They have had a terrible time getting many of these projects off the ground, even tiny Laos, which is now in the process of building a railroad. And yes, they have too much debt to China, but they negotiated for five years to knock down the interest rate, to knock down what they had to provide, how much land on each side of their railroad. The ties, you would have thought the ties after the coup in 2014 would have wanted to let China build its railroad. They, they have negotiated over 25 rounds in the last six years, and they still haven't gotten anywhere. The Thais don't like their economic conditions, the interest rate. The Chinese want to bring in their technology. They want to bring in their engineers, and the Thais aren't interested. And the one that surprises me maybe the most is Myanmar. They haven't done Chekpu, the big port. They just hold off, and, and the generals had signed an MOU, but Aung San Suu Kyi is uh, just dragged her heels. And they finally talked the Chinese down from 7.3 billion to a little over 1 billion. But nothing has happened. And this happened, they, they came to this agreement in October 2018. So it's, you know, we could go on. They have a lot of difficulty getting it off the ground. And, and the other th- fear in a lot of countries is, of course, too many Chinese workers. Yeah. Craig, you, you follow us pretty closely. Um, how do you explain the the challenges China's happening. Is, is it partly because we're doing free and open in the Pacific? Is it partly because there are alternatives? Or are they, what do you think? Are Chinese just inefficient at this? How do you explain it? I think as as Murray's book highlights, you know, we have to appreciate the agency of Southeast Asian parties here. Generally, when Southeast Asian parties are upset or pushing back on something China does, it's because it's in their interest to push back on whatever China does. So, of course, the U.S. as an alternative pole plays an enormous role in giving, I think, strategic space 
to smaller countries to act. But sometimes we can overestimate our own role in the autonomous decisions of, of these countries. And BRI is, is really highlights this because there's a sense around the U.S. sometimes when, when you listen to the arguments that, you know, if, if the U.S. isn't competing dollar for dollar with China, then therefore there must be no alternative. And, and Southeast Asians have to just take whatever deal China's offering. Now, of course, that's not entirely true. I mean, for one thing, if you're on a bridge or a road in South Asia, you're probably on one that was built by Japan, not by China. Um, but more importantly, you don't have to compete with China dollar for dollar. Uh, sometimes just making the Chinese bid and, and act more transparently is all, all it really takes. Murray highlighted Chopu, and I'd, I'd love to hear more on that for Murray, because I think it really highlights an underappreciated role that the U.S. and the Australians and, and the Europeans play here, which is you don't have to compete with the Chinese dollar for dollar. You just have to make it known that you might bid or maybe, as the case of Chalkview, send six guys from USAID to go help look over the contract. And Southeast Asian countries are pretty good at renegotiating with the Chinese themselves if they feel like they have the space to do that. For people listening who don't know Chakpu, it's a port in uh, Myanmar and is part of what the Indians call the String of Pearls infrastructure projects in ports that would give China dual-use um, civil military capabilities all along the rim of the Indian Ocean, which we did a satellite uh, surveillance study of a few years ago people worried about, but it, but it's not happening. So um, I just want to make sure people know what that is. It's not a food. <laughs> um, uh, so, Murray, how do you explain it? What, 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 what's happening with Chakpo? I mean, some of it, it, it is what Greg said, you know, but I'd go further and also add that I think people forget how nationalistic Myanmar is. I thought the Vietnamese were nationalistic, but the Burmese people are incredibly nationalistic. And I think, Mike, on a trip that you and I were on in, in 2012, uh, it was very clear they were not selling their souls. Uh, and they're not saying going to sell their souls to anybody. And the studies that Greg was referring to, Aung San Suu Kyi set up a, uh, a project bank where she has several uh, Western-educated economists uh, who'd worked at the World Bank or for Japanese banks. And they came in and looked at some of these projects and they just find them outrageous. And China really, you know, took advantage of the military. And one project that, that I learned about just before the last elections in 2016, when there was still a quasi-military government, they gave them vegetable seeds, little tractors, irrigation pumps, and declared that these were worth 300 million and told them that they could give these to farmers or sell them to farmers to get goodwill for the election so they'd vote for the ruling party. They have to pay this thing back in 2026 in hard currency at 4% interest. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, they, the, everywhere you go, you hear people say, we would like Japanese interest rates, you know, like 0.75. But they, the complaint they have about Japanese, the Chinese, they start working even before the feasibility study is done. The, the, the Japanese, they go on and on, takes three, five years to complete these things. And, you know, they're impatient. The Japanese, as you know, in almost every opinion poll taken in the region are far more popular than China or the US or Australia or India or anyone for those reasons. You're very, in the book, you talk about the other powers. We'll come back to the US in a minute. But part of our strategy, I think, is going to have to be aligning with countries like Japan and, and Australia on Southeast Asia a bit more. You're very bullish on Japan. You, you heard a lot of very positive things, it seems like. Less so India, 
Uh, it seems I picked up in the book a bit more frustration about India. And I was surprised a bit of frustration about Australia. So maybe you could talk a minute about how the other powers in Asia are viewed and, uh, you know, not, not just how they're viewed, but how influential are they? Well, yeah, I, I think Japan, uh, as you picked up, uh, has a very positive view in the region. They were the biggest trading partner before China. They are still the biggest investor in many places or second to the U.S. They've given an awful lot of aid. Now, some of it I don't think is terribly useful. You don't need too many more children's hospitals. You need you need to get these medical people out of the cities into the rural areas. But but nevertheless, they do have a very positive image. India is viewed as never quite arriving, promising they're going to look east and then they're going to act east and nothing really happens. And in the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership trade agreement that was roughly completed at the end of last year and only because India finally got out, um, pulled out. They were very frustrated because India was just putting roadblocks, protectionism on all their products. And they're they're okay. And Vietnam is okay, appreciates India doing a little bit. They're training the Vietnamese how to use five Russian submarines. So some of the military cooperation and then also the fact that uh, India has not pulled out their oil company while other many others have pulled out under the pressure of the Chinese in the South China Sea. I don't think I was trying to be as negative on Australia as you, you perceived, but there was a huge frustration in Vietnam when their prime minister visited in I don't remember, April, May last year. And it was the middle of China putting a lot of pressure in the, in the South China Sea and harassing the Dickens out of the Vietnamese and the Malaysians. And Scott Morrison never agreed to say anything public about it. He probably would today, right? Because the relations have changed immensely in the last year. Big changes in Australia. And you the reason I said it was you quote a Vietnamese academic based in Canberra, who highlighted the China choice literature of Hugh White and others that Australia is stuck because it's so dependent on China for trade. I don't think that's the zeitgeist in Australia in 2020, though. I think, mm-hmm. uh, and you just have that one reference, you know, the defense budget's gone up in Australia mm-hmm. in big ways. They're doing more exercises. Let's go back to the U.S. You've been in this business a little longer than I have, but it seems like every, it's like cicadas, every seven years or something, there's this chorus uh, that comes out of the region saying the U.S. is retreating. <laughs> In the late 70s, when you first went, in the 90s because of the financial crisis, you know, in the 2000s because of the war on terror, Obama even got it because he wasn't pro-TPP at first. And now, of course, Trump administration gets it. Is this just the usual chorus lamenting American withdrawal? Or do you think there's palpable concern or even worse, lack of concern? (laughs) Well, there's a little bit of that, too, right? Oh, which is depressing. I think that if the U.S. reelects the current president, I think Southeast Asia will check out. <laughs> well, I'll start where you asked the question, actually. Yes, they go in cycles and they, they always complain a little bit. So I guess you would maybe think that they would have liked the Obama rebalance, but they said it was nice rhetoric and nothing happened. And they'll cite like the, the, the lower Mekong initiative, just, uh, you know, a tiny bit of money. 14 million or something over, I forgot how many years. And then Trump really bothers them. So much of his relationship with them is just based on their trade surplus. And five 
of the 16 countries that were on the list of uh, ne'er-do-wells that have trade surpluses were from Southeast Asia, and they're all nervous. Um, and he's really, you know, he called Vietnam a year ago. He called Vietnam worse, worse violator than the Chinese on, a, I think it was an NBC interview. So there's, there's appreciation when Pompeo will say the things that he did last summer on the Mekong, where China's being too aggressive. What he did just a month ago, five weeks ago, on in the South China Sea. But there's just you're just you don't show up at meetings, which is the same problem they had with the Bush administration, right, Mike? They they thought at least Obama's guys show up at meetings, <laughs> and they are really nervous right now. They, as you know, they are so dependent on China economically, and they are part of the supply chain. The bigger economies are all part of the supply chain through China. They are digitally engaged. And if there's a bifurcation of the IT sector, the digital space and of the supply chain, they probably have to go with China. It's not like they would like to. They don't like they always said, even now saying it, we don't want to make a choice. But the U.S. is just economically far away. And if the international economic and digital space bifurcate, there's a lot more going on with China than there's going to be with for us. Except for Vietnam, which is saying it's, it will ban 5G and will work with Samsung. So they're, they're maybe the outlier. But you're right, that bifurcation is a real challenge. You know, in um, 2004, Condi Rice told me, I was in the White House, that she wasn't going to the ASEAN Regional Forum. And I said, it's not the Treaty of Versailles. It's not like you'll be missing <laughs> some historic uh, uh, event. But if you skip it, they will complain. I guarantee. And boy, they did. Yeah. That was it. President Bush made every summit, every APEC summit. He's the only president, he, American I president, to make right? every one. Clinton, yeah. Obama, both missed a, multiple APEC summits. Bush made every one, even right after 9-11. But mm. Condi skips two Asian Regional Forum meetings, and that's it. You are p- nailed. You are pegged. So you can imagine <laughs> the reaction to President Trump skipping the East Asia Summit and sending Robert O'Brien instead. Not a good look. Greg, no. you, you raise a really important point, which is most of what we're seeing in Murray's book is the agency of ASEAN states. And it's not because we're asking them. It's because they have their own nationals and their own interests. So circling back to you, what is American agency in this? What, what should the U.S. be doing to level the playing field a bit? I think we'd all agree the stupid thing is to ask them to choose. Mm. Um, but and then, so we can set that aside. That's not a good policy. But short of that, where is the U.S. agency in this? How do we shape this in the coming years? The U.S. can't ask him to choose. You're absolutely right. I think the U.S. shouldn't be afraid to pursue its own national interests without necessarily asking for permission. So the goal for U.S. policymakers is figure out what U.S. interests are in the region and then figure out how best to sell that to as many partners in Southeast Asia as possible and keep them along for the ride. But don't, you know, Southeast Asia doesn't get a veto. There are going to be things. 5G is perhaps a good example where there will be differences between U.S. interests and those of some of our Southeast Asian partners. And that's OK. I mean, there, it's OK to have some friction in some of these relationships. The problem with the current administration is that it's an awful lot of friction, as Murray said, on, on kind of the econ front and without a whole lot of uh, kind of respect for the agency of Southeast Asians. Right. So we're not it, it, you can upset them here and there, but you also have to give way on certain issues, too. That's that's what diplomacy is all about. 
And so like anything else, it's, it's going to be a calculus. I also think that we have to remember that while we talk about South Asia, the shorthand, it's a pretty diverse region, as Murray said. And so there will be some things where we have to work with the region of the region. And there will be some things where you have to work with the Philippines or Vietnam or whoever and not worry so much that you're upsetting Cambodia and Laos and Myanmar in the process. So Murray's book opens with a chapter on China and what it's up to. And it's it's an exploration. It's not a conclusive chapter. It explores different views, in part because I think you're setting up the subsequent chapters which look at key ASEAN states and how they view it. So rather than positing this is what China's doing, you open up the possibilities in that chapter and then let your interviews and your research show how each state sees it. It's really a fun read, by the way, because it's colorful. <laughs> it's you. it's good reportage in, in addition to good uh, analysis. Yeah, I want to turn back to Greg before getting your take on this, because um, I, I have to confess, I was reading it, and in the back of my mind, I was rating the ASEAN countries. <laughs> yeah, a little voice in my head said, don't ask them to choose, don't ask them to choose. But as I was reading it, I was thinking, who would they choose? <laughs> so caveating that we shouldn't ask him to choose, let me ask Greg first and then back to Marie on how he came out of the research on this one. Who of the 10 ASEAN states, Greg, should we be more worried about? And who should we be less worried about than we currently are in terms of being co-opted and coerced by China? Because it is a diverse, there are some common views, but it is, a, it is a diverse region with different, obviously different regime types, different levels of economic development and religious and ethnic and societal histories. So, Greg, who do you worry about more than most of us and who do you worry about less than most of us of the ASEAN states when it comes sure. to Chinese coercion and hegemony and all the rest? Yeah, I mean, the easy answer is Cambodia, right? But I think you have to, I think it's also important that we look at this relatively. So it's not about who's closest to China or most in China's pocket. It's who was not in China's pocket a few years ago, who shifted the farthest or who's most important strategically to the U.S. and who is becoming less reliable as a result. And on that metric, I mean, look, I worry about the ties. I think the Thai alliance has become largely a historical anachronism. We no longer have shared interests or shared threats. So it's really kind of tied together by the prestige of the mill-mill relationship. And that's that's not exactly, you know, it's not going to stand up over the long term if we don't get to fixing it. I worry about Malaysia, largely because I think Malaysia is entering a long period of political turmoil and the Chinese are much more willing <laughs> to take advantage of that than we are. That's interesting. I mean, not too long ago, the administration here was high-fiving was was celebrating Mahathir's comeback because he rejected a major Chinese investment project. But you don't you saw that as not a strategic uh, shift so much as a tactical or political thing. I'll make way to Murray on this. And I, I, I hope he agrees with me on this. I think there is no country in South Asia that this administration read worse than Malaysia. I think they were wildly premature and off base on the way they interpreted the elections as evidenced by the high-fiving on the East Coast Rail Line, which wasn't actually canceled. It was briefly suspended and renegotiated for a slightly better deal for domestic political reasons. Anybody who's um, more resilient in the face of Chinese pressure or temptation than we think? Well, I think everybody knows Vietnam is, so I guess I don't have to say that. You I've, know the saying, right? You've both heard it, but Vietnam is shaped the way it is because of 3,000 years of having China on its back. It goes way back. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as far as who's I don't worry as much about Indonesia as some people do, because I think Indonesia distrusts both Washington and Beijing pretty equally. And that's not going to change. So Indonesia is going to do what's right for Indonesia. Over the long term, if we can get through to 2022, I have less concern about the Philippines than some people. But Duterte is still going to Duterte for the next two years. And that's problematic. 
So, Marie, this is a little bit like the old foreign service exam where candidates were asked, they were given a budget and said, where do you spend it? So where would you invest U.S. diplomacy right now? Where should we be most worried and least yeah. worried? Yeah. I, I really think that we should not give up on Myanmar and Cambodia. Mm -hmm. I do believe in human rights. I think what Myanmar did to the Rohingya is repulsive and gross and inhumane and all that stuff. But I think it's a country, it's the crossroads from China to Southeast Asia, it's crossroads from India to Southeast Asia. It's a country of over 54 million people. It's way too big to ignore. And we ignored them when they were the junta. Then China moved in and it had huge advantages. And then we, uh, Secretary Clinton, President Obama visit, we do this rebalance toward Myanmar in a way. And uh, they made a lot of changes and opened up the country immensely. But then they took this horrible act and now we just, we just threw them over the cliff. We ignore them. Uh, the embassy keeps chugging along a little bit, but they have no defender outside of Mitch McConnell in the Senate. They have no defender in the administration. I think it's too important. I think also I would say the same about Cambodia. Cambodia has to go through a transition. Hung Sen is, what, uh, 68 or something? And he's going to transition. I guess he looks like he's going to hand it to his son. But his son will have far more complicated time than Hung Sen, and he'll have to accommodate more factions. Patrick Murphy is now the ambassador there. And I remember talking to him before he left and sort of saying, what are you going to do to whack him on human rights? Or are you going to try to take it partially back from the Chinese? <laughs> he didn't answer. But I think really we could play a more active role in these two countries. And, you know, I, I hate saying put aside human rights, but you know what? We do it all the time. Vietnam is not going to win the good housekeeping seal of approval from many human rights organizations, yet it's so strategically important that we overlook it. I'm not quite as worried about Thailand as Greg is. The Thais are masters at just bending with the wind and playing all sides. And I sense they've cooled off a little bit on the Chinese. They stand up to the Chinese on the railroad. It was a big deal. They're giving them Chinese not very much. American investment's far bigger and as is American military engagement. But I know what, what Greg is saying, and I don't totally disagree. Malaysia is a worry. I don't know how it's going to shake out on this, this whole thing and whether it's you know gonna find its way back to quasi-democracy or just have royal coups or what, I don't know. And I totally agree with Greg on Indonesia. It's the one really I feel very good about. They're gonna hold everybody off at arm's length. Yeah, I was in uh, Jakarta last in mid-November last year, and um, the Indonesians are never going to do what we ask. In fact, if we wanted to do stuff, we probably shouldn't ask. But they're going to do a lot to prevent anybody. And it'll also, it'll be just a function of geography and size and inertia, but they will mm -hmm. stop countries from uh, hegemonic control of Southeast Asia or go mm -hmm. a long way towards it just because they're the most consequential, biggest player, and they're not going to be agile. And they're not going to yeah. choose sides, but they're going to protect their interests. And right now, China is infringing on their interests a lot in Natuna and so elsewhere. The Natuna stuff. Is yeah, I think that's that. shifting. I, it's so interesting, though, because what you guys might have answered two years ago would have been different. You know, if, yes. a year or two ago, people thought Brunei was lost and forget Laos. But now Brunei is putting out 
statements on South China Sea that are kind of muscular vis-a-vis China. And even <laughs> Laos, as you pointed out, is pushing back a bit on, on debt traps. So I think the takeaway in terms of U.S. strategy and U.S. policy is, in a way, I hate to say this on a strategy podcast, but don't be too strategic. <laughs> don't make any assumptions about any of these countries in Southeast Asia. Constantly invest in the relationships. Constantly. Because they're looking out for their interests. They are internally conflicted. But there's more agency, as Greg said, than we realize. Um, the, the democracy and human rights part is tricky. I think we have to play the long game. We have to invest in civil society. Um, yes. And we have so, to invest exactly. in religious freedom. And when I was sent to Vietnam in 2005 by President Bush before Pham Van Kai, the premier's visit to Washington, big deal then, I laid it out. I said, we need a long-term sense of evolution. We're not asking for revolution. And it's in your strategic interests. When we're consistent and engaged we have more latitude to be more subtle and get more done on these things. It's when we fly in, wonder how it's going to look in the U.S. press, and then fly out that we do no help. So this is why this book is so fascinating, because it is a journey through Southeast Asia on the ground, looking at how these big strategic issues look on the ground. It's a gr- Any student, any diplomat, uh, business person uh, interested in Southeast Asia should read it. It's fun read. You can read it on the plane if you fly. <laughs> or at home if you're Zooming. When you fly. When yeah. you fly. Hey, I wanted to close uh, by asking you, Marie, now that you finished this, what's the next book you want to read? Uh, sorry, hint, Greg is working on a book on the South China Sea. But in addition to that, what is the next <laughs> book you'd really like to see somebody write on Southeast Asia? You know, two of my Far Eastern Economic Review colleagues did books on Indonesia a long time ago. There is not really a book that takes a sort of a macro look at Indonesia and its role in the region. Uh, it is the fourth largest country on the planet. And yet nobody see everybody knows where Bali is and nobody knows where Indonesia is. It's crazy. I'd like to see a new look at Indonesia. Excellent. And Greg, when's your book? I'm sorry to put you on the spot. When's the book coming out and on South China Sea? If I get to finishing it, hopefully early 2021. Excellent. So um, thanks, Greg. Murray, congratulations. Um, the new book is Under Asia's Shadow, Southeast Asia's China Challenge from Roman and Littlefield and CSIS. And this is the fulcrum of uh, U.S.-China strategic competition. And they don't want to be the fulcrum. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it takes a, a strategic discipline and uh, a level of nuance and subtlety, which may not be very American. And yet and yet it could be. It could be. And uh, your book really helps uh, helps show how it could be. So uh, thank you all. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.